ripped the skin from a Vincent, you diligent fintons. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. My voice sounds slightly different this week because I was over in Portugal smoking fags like a fucking idiot. I couldn't resist it. I couldn't resist the cigarettes in Portugal. They were like three euros or whatever the fuck. And like I don't smoke cigarettes in Ireland. I haven't really smoked cigarettes in two years. One of the one of the only things out of lockdown that I like is I wasn't smoking cigarettes whenever I had a drink. But I went over to Portugal to do a bit of writing and those Portuguese cigarettes were irresistible because I don't know what it is and I think this is a common thing. When you go abroad and the cigarettes are like two quid, your brain just says to you, it's not really smoking. You're in Portugal or you're in Spain. This isn't really smoking. Well, it is really smoking. And was it worth it? No, it wasn't worth it. I smoked 16 cigarettes and threw the last four over a bridge and remembered why they're awful. Smoking 16 cigarettes feels like climbing up, climbing up the side of a house, going onto the roof and filleting the chimney. That's what, that's what it feels like. And that's what it's done to my nasal passages. One week later, if you were following my Instagram, you'll know that I've been in Portugal on a writing trip. I got shit-faced on Sherry and nearly got hit by a tram because I was following a dog. I saw this dog. It was like a Great Dane and I followed him trying to interview <laughs> trying to interview the dog because I got it into my head that he was the mayor of Portugal. I went to the city of Porto and I slept in the attic of a 14th century warehouse that was once used to store salted cod and I got frightened by a bright orange spider that was hanging from the rafters and I was drinking cocoa in bed and I spilled the cocoa all over the fucking bed sheets and then I had to <laughs> I had to write a drunken message to the Airbnb host <laughs> that I didn't shit all over the bed <laughs> and that it was in fact cocoa and it was one of those messages that I should have just <laughs> I have just fucking waited until the morning. <laughs> I should have waited until the morning. And just taken the bed sheets off the bed. They didn't need to get a 4am text. To say that I spilled cocoa in the bed and it's not shit. Because I got startled by a fucking bright orange Portuguese spider that was hanging from the fucking rafters. And then the next morning I was looking at the message going. Fuck's sake. And they just sent a message back going, that's no problem, just leave leave the sheets out and we replace them. And then I didn't, I didn't know what to say, so I, I asked them if they knew what breed of spider it was. They didn't write back to that. What the fuck was I doing drinking cocoa in bed? I don't even drink cocoa. I've, I've no, I don't think about cocoa, I've no time for cocoa. I was after drinking a lot of that super bock Portuguese lager, which was alright. It's fizzy. It, what does it taste like? It tastes like a very stressed out pint of San Miguel. It's the only way I can describe it. It's San Miguel, but there's something extra in there. And that extra thing that's in there, it's not pleasant. It's like the pint is trying to warn you about something. So that's my review of Superbach, Portuguese lager. But yeah, I came back to the 14th century attic. Shit-faced on Superbach absolutely starving because everything was closed and in the apartment under the sink there was a tin of cocoa and pre-pandemic chocolate rice cakes 
so I launched into that and then it ended badly as soon as the bright orange Portuguese spider turned up. But it was worth it. It was all worth it because I wrote a short story that I'm incredibly happy with and came up with three or four ideas for new short stories. So my mojo is back. My flow is back. And I'm very happy with that because I had desperate writer's block over the period of lockdown. Really, really bad writer's block. Because I was just staring at the same four walls. And the thing is, getting suddenly startled by a bright orange Portuguese spider and then spilling cocoa all over the bed. That's the chaos of existence. That's the chaos and spontaneity of being alive that inspires creativity in me. The conflict of that, the conflict of it, will always travel into my unconscious mind and then find its way up a couple of weeks later as a story of some description. I think I'll write that on the Airbnb review of the place that I stayed in. But you know what else is mad? I got recognised three times in Porto from my voice. Once when I asked a group of Welsh people uh, where the nearest late pub was and they heard me and immediately just said, are you blind boy? And then I was in a bar and a fucking Portuguese waitress took my order and then she recognised my fucking voice. She wasn't Portuguese, she was Brazilian. Her name was Marta. And then I asked her, how the fuck, how are you recognising my fucking voice? And the answer she gave me And I kind of predicted it. She said, my English teacher was Irish and she recommended that we listen to your podcast. And I've listened to it every week since then. And then Marta in Porto gave me a free pint of Superbock because she listens to the podcast, but she's never become a patron. So thank you very much to Marta in Porto if you're listening. I appreciated the direct action patronage. And I wasn't expecting that, to be honest. Like I know the podcast has grown quite a large bit internationally over the pandemic but I wasn't expecting people in Portugal to recognise my voice but a huge amount of Irish people teach English abroad and quite a lot of them recommend my podcast to to their students because if their students are advanced English speakers it's like well don't listen to American stuff don't listen to English stuff listen to this fella here from Limerick and if you can understand him then your English is pretty good. So I get quite a lot of international listeners from that alone. Oh, by the way, I am gigging in Madrid and Barcelona in May and they're nearly sold out, so we'll be adding extra dates. But this specific topic fascinates me a lot, right? There's loads and loads of Irish people teaching English to people as a second language, which means that there has to be a lot of Portuguese people, Brazilian people, Spanish people, Vietnamese people, who because they have Irish teachers now speak English with an Irish accent. And the reason I'm fascinated with this is something in particular piqued my interest during the week. So there's a Turkish restaurateur by the name of Salt Bay. Now you probably know who Salt Bay is. He's a walking internet meme. Salt Bay, he became famous about four years ago because he was at a restaurant in Dubai, I think it was. And Salt Bay, he pours salt on your steak in a very extravagant way. And someone took a video of this 
and it went very viral. And then the internet decided to call him Salt Bay. Salt because he's putting salt on food and Bay because he's a good looking man. Now he's become really famous since because Salt Bay has started opening up restaurants most recently in London where people go to Salt Bay's restaurant and they spend a lot of money. So Salt Bay in the past like month has gotten particularly famous online because the prices at his restaurant are so fucking expensive. If you go to Salt Bay's restaurant for a steak, you can expect to pay maybe two grand or three grand. So that makes his restaurant incredibly exclusive. Only people who can afford to pay that amount of money are going to his restaurant. But food critics have gone there and they've said, the food isn't even good, it's not worth this money. So why are people paying three grand to eat at this cunt's restaurant? And the reason is, they're paying for the internet meme. So what happens is, you're incredibly wealthy, you sit down, you order your steak, and then Salt Bay himself comes out and he sprinkles salt on your steak in a very extravagant fashion while your friend videos it for Instagram. So what you're paying for is not the food, but you're paying to prove the internet that you were there and that you can afford it and that you've become part of the internet meme. It's exclusivity. Now also he does a ritual. So he not only does he pour the salt on your steak, he sticks a very sharp long knife into it and he feeds the person the steak on the end of a sharp knife while they expose their throat. Now I've done a hot take on this on the podcast called Hot Cheesecake. I believe that really what Salt Bay is providing is it's a safe space for incredibly wealthy people to confront their unconscious fear of being beheaded by the guillotine via the proletariat. That's what I think they're doing. It's an execution ritual. I think Salt Bay is also drawing from the long tradition of the Turkish barber. Where when you go to a Turkish barber, they cut your beard with a cutthroat razor. You have to expose your throat. There's a lot of threat there. There's the chance of you dying. There's a flirtation with mortality. But with Salt Bay, it's it's rich people, generationally rich people going, Oh fuck, what if, if, what if someday the peasants rise up and they behead me like they did to my great-great-grandfather? And I think that's what Salt Bay is all about. But if you'd like to hear that hot take in depth, go to my podcast Hot Cheesecake from a few months ago. But Salt Bay is, he's from Turkey. He's a Turkish restaurateur. From what I've read, he doesn't speak very good English. He's only learning English at the moment. So when you see Salt Bay, it's almost like Charlie Chaplin. He doesn't speak. He just performs these extravagant movements where he sprinkles salt on steak and he looks kind of ridiculous when he's doing it and this is the allure of salt bay imagine my fucking shock this week when i found a clip of salt bay speaking english and he speaks english in a fucking limerick accent specifically when he says the word avocado now i couldn't believe this when i heard it i really couldn't believe it when I, f- when I heard this clip, I assumed that someone had overdubbed it in a Limerick accent. Then I double-checked and I'm like, no, this is Salt Bay's official fucking Instagram. And then I went and looked more and I found more videos of him pronouncing the word avocado in a Limerick accent. And the thing is, this is a couple of videos, lads. It's not like 
a little bit of a Munster accent. You couldn't confuse it for a Tipperary accent, or a Clare accent, or a Cork accent. Salt Bay speaks English in a thick Limerick City accent. He's from Turkey. What the fuck is going on? I'll play you a little clip. This is Salt Bay, the famous internet meme, saying the word avocado. I'll describe the video first. It's a short video. The first thing we see is the outside of a fridge freezer, a walk-in fridge freezer. The door opens. As the door opens, you are immediately confronted with the spectacle of Salt Bay. He is holding in his arm a tray of avocados. Then he opens his mouth and he says, Avocado! What the fuck is going on there? Why is a man from Turkey speaking in a, in a Limerick City accent? It's not a Cork accent. It's not a Kerry accent. It's not a Tipperary accent. That is a Limerick City accent. Like, I don't even say avocado like that. Like, I, I've got a Limerick accent, but I have kind of a neutral Limerick accent. He's speaking in a, in a particularly thick, very specific Limerick accent. Like, the way he stretches his vowels is very specifically Limerick City. Like, I'll say avocado. And then someone from Cork might say avocado. But he goes for avocado. And that vowel, avocado. That's only Limerick City. Like, that's a Limerick City thing that people do with their vowels. I've never been able to fully explain it. Like I said, with Cork, it's avocado. There's a melody there. The Cork accent has a melody to it because I think it's because Cork has so many hills. Because Cork is so hilly, when they speak their vowels, they almost... It's almost musical. Avocado. But we don't have... We're flat in Limerick, so we go... Avocado. Like a Limerick person sounds like a Cork person who's just received some upsetting or urgent news. Listen again. Avocado. Who showed him that? Who showed him that specific way to pronounce avocado? Like, I have a, a rubber bandit sketch from about 10 years ago called The Rubber Bandit's Guide to Madeira Cake, where me and Mr. Chrome make a Madeira cake, and I say that in order to make a Madeira cake, you need to start it with a copper pipe. But in this sketch, I say the word copper pipe in a very specific Limerick way. I say, copper pipe. Or if you hear someone in Limerick say, are you getting into the car? They might say, are you getting into the care? It's like we're trying to achieve the climactic melody of Cork, where the Cork accent rises up in melody. It's like we can't do it, so instead we go sideways. I'm not letting you into this care. You're not getting into this care. You've no copper pipe. You've no avocado. Mop away out of it. You're only a girl. No, that's not like everyday parlance in Limerick. You won't hear that all the time, but... It's, it's a specific sideways speech that happens when a Limerick person is distressed or specifically giving instructions. Or anxiety. They think I'm after doing a shit in the bed and it's only a lot of cocoa. Avocado. It's like the Doppler effect. Do you know when an ambulance goes past you or if a motorbike goes past you and it, it's the sound that it makes as it goes off into the distance. That's the Limerick accent because we have flat planes. You just see people walking away. Whereas in Cork, people climb things. They climb the hills. They have control over the melody. You're not getting into this car without a copper pipe. You've no avocado. Fuck off, you cock cunt. I'm getting into the car. I've got five avocados and two copper pipes. 
The Limerick accent gets blown away by the wind and the Cork accent is protected from the wind by all the hills. But those sideways windy vowels that you get in the Limerick accent, they're, they're a fantastic musical instrument, particularly in, in rap music. Um, there's a Limerick rapper called Hazy and he makes fantastic use of those runaway vowels. Sounds like if Tom Waits and Cypress Hill fucked the dog and had weird little skin puppies. But what I need to know is, why is Salt Bay talking like that? Why is a Turkish restaurateur speaking with in, in, a, in a very specific Limerick City accent? I need to know the reason. I need to know the reason and I need to know, is Salt Bay receiving English lessons from somebody from Limerick? I need to know that and I have a strong suspicion that this is why, unless all Turkish people pronounce the word avocado like avocado, it's just maybe it's just an anomaly. But I've got a buddy, I have a buddy in Spain who's an English teacher and he's from Limerick and he'd have kind of a neutral Limerick City accent like myself. And I've spoken to him about his, his Spanish students who learn English from him, and one issue that they have is. So they pronounce the word one like one. Because in Limerick, one is one. One, two, three, one. But these kids are Spanish and one is a Spanish name. So now they're going around the place counting and you've got all these kids in Spain now saying one. One. Like they're from Limerick. Something I'd like to point out also is... My Salt Bay observation, my Salt Bay hot take. If you've been on Instagram this week or you've been on TikTok, you may have seen this hot take already. You may have seen a page called Lad Bible make this very hot take. You might have seen Lad Bible sharing a video of Salt Bay saying avocado with text underneath that says, OMG, Salt Bay sounds like he's from Limerick when he says avocado. Laughing crying face emoji. So if you're thinking that I stole this hot take from Lad Bible, I didn't. What happened was is I posted it, I made the observation on Saturday, and then Lad Bible decided to post a video pretending that they came up with it. Because that's what Lad Bible do, because they're 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 arseholes. They're buttheads. Jesus Christ. They've done that to me about nine times over the past decade. I don't understand it. Just credit the person. Just credit the person. If you're going to be taking content, you still get the same amount of views. You can still have your video. You can still have all of that. Just credit the person. What's the point in pretending that you came up with it? I I don't get it. It's not like I can copyright the observation. It's not like I can sue them. And then I call them out and about a hundred other people call them out. And then finally what they do is they credit you in the comments with about nine crying laughing face emojis. And when Lad Bible do that, when they get called out and then they finally credit the person in the comments and put a lot of laughing, crying face emojis, what Lad Bible are trying to do in that instant is they're trying to pretend that they're an 11 year old boy. I'm sorry, blind boy, I didn't know it was your video. When I, I got the video and I put it on, on the computer, my mam, my mam let me at the computer and then my Uncle John, my Uncle John was over and he gave me 40 euros for my confirmation when I put the video up on the computer and then I love the song that you did about the horse when it was outside. And, and they're trying to pretend that they're an 11-year-old boy when they take accountability. And it's like, you're not. You're multiple adult men in your 30s 
who try to get away with uh, not crediting people if you can. You're, you're legally registered as a, as a business-led Bible. You do brand deals with advertising agencies. We know that you're not an 11-year-old boy laughing, crying face emoji. And I hate having to point it out every time because it makes me look pure petty. Like, I don't actually mind that someone is pretending that my observation is theirs. That's not the issue. It's that Lad Bible as a platform is fucking huge. Like, they have millions of followers. So I end up with loads of people messaging me with Lad Bible's posts, going, oh my God, Blind Boy, have you seen this? Salt Bay has a Limerick accent. Or worse, and I guarantee it would happen if I didn't do this disclaimer, but worse, someone listening to this podcast and then thinking that I nicked Lad Bible's hot take. But if anyone does know who is uh, teaching Salt Bay English, I would like to know if it's a Limerick person doing it. Because this isn't the first time in history that that's actually happened. In the late 1890s, the Russian royal family, so that was the royal family of Russia before the Soviet Union, they all spoke English in thick Limerick accents because they had a nanny by the name of Margaret Eager who was from Limerick. And she taught all the Russian royal family how to speak English. And this was the, the Russian royal family that ended up under the influence of that mad lunatic Rasputin, the fella they couldn't kill. So this Margaret Eager one from Limerick was probably probably knew Rasputin. And maybe Rasputin spoke in a Limerick accent. So before the fucking Russian Revolution, all the Russian royals spoke English with a Limerick accent. And then even more bizarrely, when the Russian Revolution happened in 1917, right... So it became Soviet Russia and they overthrew the Russian monarchy. Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, who overthrew the monarchy and established Soviet Russia, he spoke with a Dublin accent because he had learned how to speak English from a teacher that was from Dublin. So something I'd like to speak about in the podcast this week, and it's a recurring theme on this podcast because I'm always fascinated by what I'd call the Irish cultural footprint. The reason being it's it's St. Patrick's Day this week. Paddy's Day as we call it or Patty's Day as the Yanks call it. And Patrick St. Patrick's Day is it's celebrated everywhere in the fucking world. Like we're this tiny, tiny little country and we've got St. Patrick's Day Halloween is an Irish holiday. I did a podcast a few months back exploring how the modern Western vision of what hell is, like this place in the afterlife of eternal fiery torture, how that also comes from Ireland via an 11th century manuscript called the the Vision of Knugdalis, which who was a an 11th century knight from Cork who managed to get himself knocked out for two days and he claimed that he visited hell and he wrote about what hell was like in the 11th century and this manuscript got passed all the way way around the known world at the time until it ended up inspiring the paintings of a painter called Hieronymus Bosch in the 1500s and Hieronymus Bosch is the person who first painted gave us a visual representation of what hell is like the torture of hell Hieronymus Bosch did this, but he took his his visual inspiration from the visions of a 
a knight from Cork in the 11th century. So hell is basically Cork. But I'd like to speak this week about a place called St. Patrick's Hall, which is a very intriguing site in Donegal. Which, when I investigated it when I did some research, is more evidence of Ireland's fairly large cultural footprint than our influence on modern thought and social constructs. But before I do that, let's have a little ocarina pause. I don't have an ocarina this week. Well, I don't. I'm in my fucking office. And the ocarina didn't make it as far as the office. I don't have a lot of things in this office that I can make noise with. Do you know what I have? I have a trinket that I mentioned on one of the earliest podcasts. One of the first ever podcasts. I have the mug of fragile masculinity. The mug of fragile masculinity is one of the most embarrassing things that I own. Quite simply, all it is is it's like a thermos flask it's a mug made out of metal and I put a pint of tea inside it and it will keep the tea warm for about 90 minutes in terms of practicality it's fucking amazing but I hate it because I couldn't find a pint mug that's like a thermos that keeps my tea warm that just looks like a normal mug instead this fucking piece of shit It's made by the company Stanley and it looks like it's for outdoor use and it's army green and it's got a carabine on it for fucking tying to things. It's a mug that at all times says to me, you're a big strong man. You're a big strong man who can survive in the outdoors with your hot tea inside in your fucking office. So that's why I call it the mug of fragile masculinity. It's an embarrassing thing that I have. That I must have so that I can have hot tea. Otherwise I'll drink too much tea. So this will keep a pint of tea warm for 90 minutes. In a traditional pint mug made out of ceramics. I drink the tea too quickly. And now I'm drinking three pints of tea per 90 minutes. Which is an unacceptable amount of tea drinking. So I need to keep it warm in the mug of fragile masculinity. But every time I take a sip, it tries to enforce unhelpful constructs about my gender on me. So let's have the mug of fragile masculinity pause. I'll flick it. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Doesn't make much of a noise. Because it's very sturdy stainless steel. It's a great mug. It's a fantastic mug. 
It just doesn't need to be that unnecessarily masculine. Just keep my fucking tea warm and don't tell me that I need to strangle a deer with my bare hands in order to be a man. So you might have heard an advert there, I don't know what it was for. The adverts are algorithmically generated and inserted by Acast. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, if you're listening to it regularly, if it brings you some joy, some solace, some relief, some entertainment, whatever the fuck, um, just please consider paying me for that work that I do in order to put the podcast out. This podcast is my full-time job. This is how I earn a living. I'm only able to make the podcast and put the research into it because it's my full-time job. I love doing this work. I adore it. But if you're enjoying that work, just please consider paying me for it. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. If you can't afford that, don't worry about it. Because someone else is paying for you to listen. So if you can afford it, you're paying for the people who can't afford it. Everybody gets a podcast. I earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. Patreon.com forward slash The Blind Boy Podcast. Also, being a patron keeps the podcast fully independent. I'm not beholden to any advertiser. No advertiser can tell me what to speak about, how to change my content. I can turn down quite a lot of advertisers, which is a very good thing. Because you never want to be beholden to advertisers. You never want to be beholden to them because then you can't turn them down. And then they're dictating what the podcast is. And before you know it, you don't have a podcast anymore. You have radio. And what makes podcasts fantastic is that they're not radio. A podcast is everything radio isn't. Podcasts allow small independent creators to make something that they're genuinely passionate about. And the podcast space in general has been overtaken by large corporate money. So small producers and small podcasters are getting pushed out. So don't just support my independent podcast. Support whatever independent podcast that you're listening to and that you enjoy. And you can support it monetarily or by sharing it or by just leaving a review. I have some live podcast gigs that I want to plug. Next Tuesday in Vicker Street. I'm in Vicker Street. I've got a very special guest. It's going to be unbelievable crack. It'll be a Tuesday. Perfect night. If you want to come to a live podcast, have a magnificent night. Not get shit-faced. Be up the next morning ready for fucking work. With a clear head. So I've got three Vicker Streets. The one next Tuesday and then I have two in April. And I only had like two months to promote these gigs. Which is a small amount of time to promote those gigs because of the restrictions and lockdown. So please come along to those gigs in Vicker Street if you're in Dublin. They will be unbelievable crack. Vicker Street gigs are always crack. I've three gigs down in Cork at the end of this month. Opera House and two St. Luke's. Currently, I think there's only tickets left for one of those St. Luke's, but do come along. And then also, oh, I forgot about this one. On the 31st of March, I'm in the University of Limerick doing a live podcast, but that one's only open to students of University of Limerick. So if you're going to UL and you want to come along to my live podcast in UL, I don't know where you get the tickets, but they can't be too hard to find. And I think there's... I think the university is doing a concession on him as well. I'm recording this podcast quite late. Not too late. It's, what is it now? It's 10pm. The reason I'm recording this late is in my office today, the barefoot accountant was howling, howling in the fucking corridor. 
Um, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that I'm recording this in an office now and it's a shared space. And there's this accountant who walks around barefoot on his phone screaming. And he just had a bad day today. Um, I could really hear what he was saying. I, I, there's, I think some computer or some system was broken, but he, he was stressed out, barefoot, howling, screaming in pain. And that made it difficult for me to record. So I had to wait until after five o'clock, basically, for everyone to go home. And now I'm recording this in a big, giant office, office complex on my own in the dark. And thank fuck I'm not scared of ghosts because there's a bit of a shining vibe. It does have that shining sense. I'm, I'm just in this huge building of offices and offices and offices and several stories. And it's just me. Nobody else. I think I'll go and have a howl. I'll have a howl in the corridors and scare the ghosts. Now, I'm not scared of ghosts. But there's always that part of yourself, isn't there? There's always that part of yourself that can, no matter how old you are, you can always freak yourself out. Like, everyone has to battle with that thing when you're a teenager. You know when you're a teenager and you're walking home at night time and then the last 100 metres before your house you freak yourself out about ghosts or aliens and there's no one around and then you decide to run the last 100 metres home and you do it when you're 12 and it's okay. Then you get to 13 you're still doing it but then you're 15 you're 16 and for me it was when I was 16 and I'm like man you're still doing the fucking 100 meter dash at night time as soon as you get you gotta stop it you gotta stop doing that you gotta be a big boy there's no ghosts so I got rid of that I don't do it anymore but I could probably in this office complex I, I bet you I probably could freak myself out if I really wanted to because this office complex is it's in the heart of Limerick City. And there's probably generations of misery underneath my feet. Limerick's an old city. Limerick goes back 1100 years. There's been massacres and revolutions and famines and cholera epidemics. All underneath my feet. So if there was a haunting. Yeah I can't see why. Some old mouldy ghost from the 14th century isn't wandering these corridors. <laughs> Something about the modernity of the fluorescent lights stops my ghost fear when I'm here alone in the office complex. As soon as I walk outside the door of my office and it's pitch dark in the corridor, for like one second I'm like, oh shit, what if I see a ghost? But then the sensors sense me and the fluorescent lights turn on and then the ghosts disappear and I can be a functioning adult once again. But I tell you what, out of the hundreds of offices in this building, if there's one other person here who's also working late and they don't know that I'm here and I don't know that they're here, if one of us makes a noise, we are freaking the shit out of each other. I had a buddy when I was in college, he was from Cork and he got himself a job straight after his leaving cert. Or he'd managed to freak himself out about ghosts so much that he developed an anxiety disorder. Because he had this job. And this job sounds like purgatory. It sounds like one of the most loneliest, torturous jobs I could imagine. He was the only security guard 
on an unbuilt multi-storey car park at night time. So it was this seven-storey multi-storey car park with no walls and no lights and like just like ladders instead of stairs and he had to go there at nine o'clock at night and then leave at eight in the morning and he had this tiny little cabin you'd think it'd be like okay grand you just stay in your little cabin in the unbuilt multi-story car park just stay in your little cabin for eight hours and you'll be okay but no that wasn't his job every half hour he had to climb in the pitch dark with a torch up ladders in this fucking multi-story unbuilt car park and he had to press a button on each floor to prove that he was actually doing his job as a security man and every time he'd flash his torch against the concrete pillars of the unbuilt car park every time he'd move his torch he'd see what he thought was a ghost or a figure jumping out from the shadows until he eventually just started getting massive panic attacks every night until he became afraid of ghosts and the worst thing about the whole experience is that he lasted about three months in the job and by the end of it he'd managed to save up 900 euros and he spent the 900 euros on a floor length leather Armani jacket that he saw on TK Maxx that he never wore and this was not a leather jacket man not even a regular length leather jacket this fella wore tracksuits he didn't know why he did it and the reason he bought it is that he was so rattled from the anxiety that he wasn't making rational choices this was the money he was supposed to save up for first year of college and he couldn't even sell it he couldn't even sell it to a goth not even the goths in Cork wanted a floor length Armani leather jacket but that's what I think of if I if if I as an adult now manage to freak myself out about ghosts if I'm here alone in the office I just start thinking about that floor length Armani leather jacket and the idea of it is so ludicrous and hilarious that it dispels any fear of ghosts whatsoever but his story reminded me of how purgatory is described it's described as a place of uncertain anxiety where you're chased by demons but always protected by angels but it's forever in between the two so it's a continual anxiety and we think of like the way we thought of hell as you assume it's something in the Bible but there's no mention of hell in the Bible hell doesn't exist in the Bible there's mention of dying and being somewhere where God isn't present and it's, it, there's a loneliness but this idea of torture and fire and demons that's an Irish construct that comes from that vision of Nug Dallas that I mentioned earlier but also I found out that the vision of purgatory that we have is also an Irish construct and it can be traced to a place called St. Patrick's Hall and St. Patrick's Hall is in Donegal and it was a place of Christian pilgrimage. It still is. In the 11th and 12th century, St. Patrick's Hall was the... It was like the equivalent of going to Brazil and doing an ayahuasca trip. People would go to St. Patrick's Hall because they believed that when they went there, they could experience purgatory. So St. Patrick's Hall 
also known as St. Patrick's Purgatory, is a real place that you can visit now. And it's on Loch Darg, up in Donegal. And Loch Darg is, it's a large lake, because it's a loch, and in the middle is a tiny little island. And in this island is St. Patrick's Hall. Now when we think of St. Patrick, the legend of St. Patrick, what did he do? St. Patrick introduced Christianity to Ireland. We don't know how fully true that is. There was Christian monks in Ireland before St. Patrick. But it's generally accepted that St. Patrick definitely popularised Christianity in Ireland. Like it, was, it was something he wanted to do. Some people say St. Patrick banished the snakes from Ireland. Well, there was no snakes in Ireland. But what some people believe that means is... That's a myth that was constructed by the Anglo-Saxons because there was snakes in England. There still is snakes in England. And snakes are a metaphor for pagans. So when they say St. Patrick banished the snakes from Ireland, what I meant is that he converted the pagans to Christianity. But this was a long process. You know, Patrick coming to Ireland and going to all the, the chieftains and the clan leaders in Ireland and all the different petty kingdoms and trying to convert these people to Christianity and he had quite some success but it took a long time and where the legend of St. Patrick's Hall comes from is so after Patrick converted some Irish people to Christianity they started to revert back to their pagan ways and they started to go to Patrick and go this fucking Christ business man you can't prove any of it You can't prove any of this shit. They're just nice stories, but you can't prove it. And Patrick started to get really, really discouraged that when he he gave the people of Ireland the word of God, they would revert back to their pagan ways and they wouldn't believe him. So God visited St. Patrick and said to him, All right, Patrick, I'm going to tell you about a secret cave. Go up to a place called Donegal. And you're going to find a lake. And in this lake, there's a little island. Go into that island. And you're going to find a cave. Now go into that cave. And you're going to see hell. And any person in Ireland who doesn't believe in Christ or the word of God. You tell them to go to this little cave. In the middle of the island, in the lake in Donegal. Tell them go down into that fucking cave. And when they come back out, they're going to believe. They're going to believe in Christianity because they will see hell in that cave. And that was St. Patrick's Hall, a cave in Donegal, where if you go there, you can see, you can experience purgatory. So basically you're down there and you're able to witness the tortures of hell without you actually experiencing them. And anyone who went down there had a harrowing experience. It was a terrifying experience where you're chased by demons but guarded by the angels. And when you come out of the cave, you're converted. And the cave is still there. It was closed off in the 16th century. But if you go to St. Patrick's Purgatory now, there's a basilica around it. It's It's a little island that looks like it has a church there, but the cave is there. You just can't get into it. But what makes this so important and why I'm interested in it and why I'm interested in the overall Irish cultural footprint on Western culture as such is just how influential 
the legends around St. Patrick's Purgatory shaped what we consider to be purgatory and hell and what we understand it to be. So in the 11th century, apparently a knight, an Irish knight by the name of Owen, descended into the cave in Donegal, St. Patrick's Hall. And lots of descriptions of Owen's experiences were written about as an example of what's called Irish vision literature. And another example of this, like I mentioned, is the other 11th century manuscript I mentioned, The Vision of Knugdalus, that night that went to hell. But Owen went into St. Patrick's Hall and he experienced purgatory. He was, as soon as he went down the steps of the cave, he was dragged by his feet. And I read you a little excerpt of this 11th century manuscript, a translation. The demons now hurried the knight to the top of a lofty mountain and showed him a large number of people of both sexes and different ages. All were sitting naked, bent down upon their toes, turned towards the north and apparently waiting in terror at the approach of death. Suddenly a violent whirlwind from the north swept them away and the knight with them and carried them, weeping and lamenting, to another part of the mountain into a cold and stinking river. And when they endeavoured to rise out of its chilling waters, the demons coursed over the surface and again sank them into its depths. The knight, however, invoked the name of Christ and immediately found himself on the other bank. So what you have is this piece of 11th century Irish vision literature, which now we'd call science fiction, science fiction or fantasy, this wonderful, beautiful piece of imaginative literature about this knight called Owen who goes down St. Patrick's Hall and is protected by the angels and protected by Christ but is witnessing the horrible vision of hell. So it's purgatory. It's both heaven and hell at once. And also they show him the wonders of heaven and the fucking Garden of Eden and all this shit. But the vision of Owen down St. Patrick's Hall in the 11th century was such a brilliant piece of vision literature that it spread all over Europe. It spread everywhere because this is like a blockbuster. Like let's not view this as a vision of fucking hell and view it instead as Irish monks, Irish storytellers, Irish writers writing an incredible, beautiful, detailed, terrifying, imaginative fantasy story that was so impactful that it got copied and spread all over Europe and it directly influenced Dante because Dante is a 14th century poet from Florence and Dante is always credited with the first description of hell. Dante always gets the credit because he had Dante's Inferno which was it was a segment in his overall poem called the Divine Comedy but Dante is always credited as this is the modern vision of hell and it was invented by Dante in the 14th century and he was Italian. Dante's lad bible basically. Dante is taking all the credit for inventing the vision of purgatory and the vision of hell with his poem the divine comedy. He's lad bible. All he's doing is taking ideas from brilliant Irish fantasy writing from the 11th century and calling it his own. Because you've heard of Dante's Inferno. You've heard of the Divine Comedy. These are in popular consciousness. You haven't heard of the vision of Owen. You haven't heard of the vision of Tnogdalis. But this is where it comes from. Dante was reading 
the vision of Orn, and Dante was reading the vision of Trogdalis. So it was Irish, early Irish medieval literature that went on to influence Dante, that went on to influence the paintings of Hieronymus Bosch, and gave us our modern interpretation of heaven, hell and purgatory. They're all Irish constructs. That's the power of Irish culture. Whatever the fuck we have going on here, going back 1500 years, we make very impactful art, specifically literature, that shapes Western culture. But a strange thing happened around the 12th century throughout Europe concerning St. Patrick's Hall in Donegal. So because the vision of Owen as a piece of beautiful literature, as a piece of terrifying literature, had travelled so much and was being rewritten and translated all around Europe. People who had money in Europe would read this terrifying story about Owen's journey into the hall and they would become obsessed with it because the thing is is that it was a real place. This wasn't a, a mythical place. There was a place called Donegal and there's a lake called Loch Darg and there's an island in the middle of it and in that island is a cave and you go into that cave and you see purgatory. So what happened in the 12th century and going right into the 13th, 14th, 15th century is very, very wealthy people found themselves needing to go there to cleanse themselves. It's the only thing I can compare it to now is... Jeff Bezos and those cunts going into space. You know the way now billionaires want to go off into the abyss of space. They want to see the the liminal emptiness of outer space and look down at the earth. And only the wealthiest people can do this. And they're doing this because they have too much. They have so much they're anxious. And all they have left is to spend 20 million quid to go up onto a spaceship and look down at the earth what they want is purgatory they say it's for science it's not it's spiritual they want to be up there and you look in one direction and what you see is the beautiful glowing blue earth that's the garden of eden that's heaven and then you look in the other direction and it's the empty black liminal nothingness of space that's hell And in that moment, they can confront their own mortality. And if you're not a billionaire, but you're a millionaire, you can go to Salt Bay's restaurant and have him hold a knife to your neck. And if you have no money, you can read a book called The Road by Cormac McCarthy. That's what St. Patrick's Hall was in the 12th century. So you had all these noble families now travelling to Donegal. But the thing is with Donegal in, in the fucking 12th century... It was seen as the edge of the world. They didn't know about fucking America or anything beyond it. Donegal was like the westernmost part of the world and it was seen as a... To get there was a gruelling, terrifying, dangerous journey. And if you're a wealthy prince from Florence in Italy or if you're from the south of France, you'll never have experienced that bleak, barren, cold terrifying weather of Donegal freezing sideways wind and rain that cuts your face and imposing terrifying mountains with fucking rocks picked off them that's a big deal in the 12th century if you're from somewhere with decent weather and all around Loch Darg there were these harsh rocks and stuff so all these rich cunts 
would spend months and huge amounts of money getting as far as Donegal, freaking themselves out along the way. And what would happen with the stress of the journey is they'd get there, they'd get to St. Patrick's Hole, they'd go down there, and like my buddy who was working on that fucking building site and freaking himself out with the torch, they'd go down the cave and they'd go fucking mad. They would see demons, they'd get panic attacks, they'd feel in extreme danger, they'd feel lonely, they'd feel everything that they don't experience because they were so wealthy. And they'd come out of it saying, yeah, I went down to St. Patrick's Hall and I saw hell and I experienced hell and now I'm a changed man. So this was a, the most gruelling, hardcore pilgrimage that you had to do if you had money and you were a Christian in Europe in the 12th or 13th century. You went down a cave in Donegal in the middle of an island called St. Patrick's Hall and you saw hell, you visited purgatory. And people still do it today. You can do it now if you want. But it's seen as the most hardcore Christian pilgrimage that can be done. It's only for raving lunatics. The only time St. Patrick's Purgatory stopped being popular was, I think it was the 16th century, and some monk from the Netherlands went to Donegal and went down the cave. And when he went, when he went down there, he was like, this is grand. And then he went back to the Pope and he complained that no demons attacked him when he went down into St. Patrick's Hall. But thousands of people still go there today. And they go to the banks of Loch Darg. And the first thing they have to do when they get there is they have to take their shoes off. And they have to walk for ages over real jagged rocks until their feet fucking bleed. And their feet bleed because the monks in St. Patrick's Purgatory today sharpen the rocks so that they do cut your feet. And people go there to suffer. Mainly Catholics, they go there to actually suffer. So when you go on this pilgrimage to Donegal, you're not allowed to eat. There's no eating. If you fall asleep, someone will wake you up. It, it's sleep deprivation. People put themselves into a, a sense of starvation and sleep deprivation. And the only thing that you can, can consume in St. Patrick's Hall is a thing known as Loch Darg Broth which is hot water that's flavoured with salt and pepper, and that's it. So you spend your time not eating, not sleeping, with your feet all cut up, praying that God will forgive them of their sins and trying to renounce the pleasures of the flesh and torturing themselves. And to be perfectly honest, if you do that and there's enough people around you, you probably will have a few hallucinations, you will have a few visions, You will see demons. You'll put yourself into a situation where you're buying a floor-length fucking Armani leather jacket in TK Maxx. So that's my hot take for this week. I'd proved in a a previous podcast that our understanding, our modern understanding of hell is based on Cork. When our modern understanding of purgatory is based on Donegal and St. Patrick's Hole. And that's my little St. Patrick's Day podcast. A nice cheerful podcast about St. Patrick's Day. If you're not doing anything on St. Patrick's Day, I'm going to be back on Twitch. I'm going to be back on Twitch at half eight Thursday night, making some tunes. I'm not going to be drinking. I might... So recently, I was I was given a... Recently, I was given a, a can of stout. 
by the Array Collective. They're a group of artists and they won this year's Turner Prize. And the, this Turner Prize was an installation that contained several different objects. One of these objects was a can of stout. And they gave it to me as a gift. And I'm, I'm considering drinking this can of stout on my live Twitch stream as a piece of performance art. Because technically, I'd be drinking the Turner Prize. So I might do that, but I will be on Twitch this Thursday night at half eight. Making up some songs in a digital environment and having some fun. Because I haven't been on Twitch in two weeks and I'm looking forward to getting back. Twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. If you're not doing nothing on Paddy's Day. I don't have a Twitch song this week because I'm not editing them fast enough. I can make four songs in an hour, but editing one song down to four minutes takes about five hours. So I don't have one this week, but I'll be working on getting them getting them together soon. Okay, dog bless. Everyone have a wonderful week this week. I'm going to be back next week with a hot take. A hot take or possibly a surprise. I may be interviewing someone this week who's a bit of a big deal. And if that goes ahead, hopefully that's what I'll have next week. But I can't confirm whether it's going to happen or not. But that's all I'll say. And also come to my gigs that I mentioned earlier, please. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.